Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Fear of failure holds us back in so many things in life. And if we're honest, it really, really does. I mean, th think about if I could guarantee you the next three things you try, you'll absolutely succeed in. I'm going to bet you would choose some bold things. Mm -hmm. um, but the interesting thing about when you're at that low, low, low point, and many of us have been there, some of us will be there, is that it's it's so easy to see everything that's being taken away from you, but it's not easy to see that one really, really, really valuable gift has been given to you, and it has a short shelf life. And the gift is this. That is the one time when I guarantee you, you will not failure. You just don't care. You're, you're already at the bottom of the barrel. What's failure going to do? Make you feel bad? You, I mean, you already feel miserable. So the, the, the point of it is that for a short while, you are bulletproof. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. David, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about your book, The Altitude Journals, uh, by way of your publicist. And when she told me that you were, you know, a person who had climbed Everest, I thought, yes, I want to talk to this person. There's probably a lot to learn. Uh, so I want to start with a question that I think is, is very informative, um, just based on some of what I know. And that is, what is one of the most important lessons that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you ended up doing with your life? You know, I, I would I would go to a, a lesson that I learned from my mom. Um, she uh, she she always told us we were special, <laughs> and and to be to be quite honest, we were not. We we were we were just poor. Um, but you got to hang your hat on something, and um, and she was always making the case why we were special. Um, you know, uh, we would get food stamps, which of course are printed and multicolored script. Uh, but she would point out how special our money was versus the normal green money and this sort of thing. So you, you get the idea. Um, and the funny thing is, is if, if you brainwash a kid young enough, 
uh, he actually internalizes and believes some of the stuff a parent says to him. And and I think, you know, even when I was old enough to recognize the sort of the 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 kinder spin my mother was putting on our difficult circumstances, the message that we were special stayed with me somehow. And um and uh <laughs> That 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 can make a difference in in the context of the choices a person makes in their life. Um, if in the back of your mind there's a little voice saying, "Yeah, but you're but you're special," um, I think it gives you license to to explore ideas that that you might not otherwise. And of course, the truth is we're all special, mm-hmm. and it's and I think it's just so important that we we find the space to see that and know it and believe it and and understand it as a basic truth that 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 feeds the course of our lives. Yeah. So there's one other thing that you you said in the book. There are two things I wonder. You said your father disappeared and he picked up his new family, the family he married into shortly after you know he divorced your mother in 1968, and there was no you know, forwarding address and likewise, no child support. What I wonder is having this mother who told you that you were special and having this father who had disappeared from your life in childhood, how has that influenced um, your own experiences as a parent? Because I know you have two sons. Like, how has that shaped and influenced you as a parent? Well, it it made me very conscious of uh, the father that I would be. Um, and you know, I, I think it's a standard thing. Every son would like to do better than his father did, but in my case, the bar was so low that, yeah. it, that it just wasn't difficult. And, and at some point I realized, no, 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 let, let, let's, let's start with a blank piece of paper. Don't be a father relative to another father. What, what, what is the, the image of the father you would draw with a blank piece of paper and how can you shape your choices and your and your 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 guidance for for your sons and and set examples that are healthy and that sort of thing mm-hmm. i mean as far as as you know examples i mean what are the kinds of um the things that you've encouraged your children to do as a parent because you're kind of an unconventional father i don't think most of us you know uh deal with a father who decides that you know what after a career on wall street i'm gonna go climb everest <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I've I've always encouraged my sons, first of all, to um, be open thinkers, to 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 just not accept truths that are handed to them, to ask questions, to prod, to explore, uh, to make up their own mind. Um, I, I want them to be free thinkers, and uh, I have always tried to expose them to other cultures, other places. I I, I would like them to be more global citizens than. American citizens. Not that there's anything wrong with being an American citizen, but I think the the more you experience the rest of the world, the greater appreciate, appreciation you have, not just for the rest of the world, but for the world you live in. And we live in a marvelous world in America. We are so, so, so fortunate. Um, you know, I've been to places where uh, the water they drink is not as clean as the water we crap in. And those sort of lessons really stick to you and and create a much greater appreciation for what we have. And I think that is the basis of gratitude for for all good things returning, uh, as well as what generosity you can share with others. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that, like I was telling you before we, we hit record here, I think the things that really stood out to me more than the climbs themselves were sort of the life lessons that came from each one and, and sort of the things that prompted this whole thing. But 
Um, you, you talk about divorce and you say it's just the final destination on a long road trip of unbelieving. It's route crossing rivers and mountain ranges, zigzagging randomly and pausing for occasional breakdowns. You litter each rest stop with the wrappers of what you once held as the truth. Love is forever. And then shortly after that, you say the human tendency to extrapolate recent experience into the future racks up an awesome toll of suffering to come. And you were talking about this, you know, from the context of climbing, but I think that was about a lot more than climbing. Uh, what, you know, how did you, you know, arrive at this conclusion um, and how do people actually resist that tendency to extrapolate recent experience into the future? Yeah. So th that tendency in psychology has a name. It's called a uh, recency bias. And, um, and, and this is something that's hardwired into most of us and, and frankly served us quite well throughout most of evolution. Uh, the, the notion that whatever has happened recently is going to keep happening, uh, in the very near future and foreseeable thereon. You know, if if the last three times somebody who went to the water hole for water was eaten by a saber toothed tiger, you would say, aha, this is maybe not a good idea. We'll go to a different water hole. Um, it, it's, it's that kind of a thing. Um, but there are problems in modern society when we let recency bias uh, impact the, the decisions we make. Um, I, I make a living on Wall Street, and, and something I'm constantly fighting uh, for the benefit of clients is their own recency bias. If the market's gone down 30%, nobody wants to buy stocks because recency bias says it's going to go down more. Well, it might or it might not, but things are 30% off and, and you were perfectly willing to buy them before this happened. So we should actually feel pretty good about this. And, and uh, you know, for buying for the long haul, this is a pretty good time to, to go pick up some great values, which is what I've been doing for the last several weeks. Um, but it extends into a lot of other things. And the example I use in the book is, uh, is mountain climbing uh, and this notion that um, if the only reason um, a climber is on the expedition is to reach the summit, it's very unlikely they're going to get there. And I've seen it so many times um, because the, 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 the total amount of sacrifice and suffering required to get to the summit easily exceeds any glow you're going to feel when you're standing there. And at some point, we realize this. <laughs> so there's got to be something else uh, that's driving you. And we can talk about what that is if you like. But, oh, yeah. um, but, the, but the, the, the point of it being is that um, if, 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 you've, if you're having a bad day as a climber, and everybody does sooner or later, and the only reason you are there is to get to the summit and you make the mistake of looking up at the summit and it's still 8,000 feet above you, um, the impossibility of it will crush you. <laughs> and and you just you won't have what it takes to, to suffer through another day in thin oxygen and, and you're done. And so um, that, that's recency bias. You've, you've, you've been having a tough time and all you can really do is extrapolate that moving forward, which probably is not correct in that mm -hmm. case. Uh, tomorrow's always a better day. And, uh, and, but, but it's part of the mental game when it comes to especially altitude climbing, where I've seen so many climbers who physically were very, very capable of reaching the summit, but mentally they just did not manage that game uh, adequately. Yeah. So that, that makes me wonder, uh, you know, what role 
you mentioned sort of lack of oxygen in thin air. Like, what role does the the mental play in the physical, uh, particularly in that environment? I mean, I, I think that there's no question that our physical bodies and our mental thought process are, are incredibly linked. But in this case, you know, your mind can actually get in the way of your body. Whereas I think in our day to day lives, um, we tend to actually, you know, get a lot of value from our body because it actually helps the mind in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, that's very true. Very true. Uh, a, a good workout leaves you feeling ebullient mentally. Yeah. And uh, so, and, 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 you know, we've seen this and positive thoughts uh, make you more capable of doing challenging physical things. So the two are quite linked. Um, and I, I don't think that link breaks down in high altitude, but the volume gets turned down on each of those two voices. They don't hear each other quite as well. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, by the time a climber goes above 19,000 feet, um, the, the oxygen that's available is so thin that your, your, your body starts to shut down. By any medical definition, you are dying. And the, the, the whole idea with high-altitude climbing is to manage the process of dying in a way where you buy enough time to get up and down before that concludes. And um, so your, your body clearly is being pushed. Um, your mind is being pushed. Uh, by the time uh, I got up to 23,000 feet, I, I couldn't do simple math, adding and subtracting. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're missing 50% of the oxygen that we breathe at sea level. And believe me, you feel that. Um, and so somehow you need enough of each of those things left over to make that effort to get to the summit. And that inevitably is the big moment in in any major high altitude climb is when you're at high camp and you're saying have i got enough left of these things to actually pull this off mm -hmm. so i, I want to come back to the climbs because like i said i think the the lessons from them were so profound but before we do that talking about how you go from being this kid who grows up in poverty to you know a career on wall street to deciding that you're going to be one of these 65 people that have survived this, you know, attempt to climb Everest. Yeah. So the 65 people, uh, that, that wasn't just Everest. That was, uh, for the seven summits. Right. So you, as you know, having just finished the book yourself, I, I climbed the high point of each continent and that's what's known as the seven summits. So I was the 65th American to, uh, you know, survive, uh, that quest. So, um, your, your question, how, how do you go from being a kid in poverty? You know, the, the, the short answer is education. Um, we, we didn't have much, um, but uh, with thanks to my mother, we had an understanding of the importance of education and how that was our ticket to a better life moving forward. And so um, she would constantly be reading and reinforcing the notion that reading is a good thing and encourage us to read. We'd talk about what we were reading. Um, she would ask us about school. We would tell her what we were doing. Um, education was uh, a topic in our household. And, and I, I think that choice on her part validated how we were spending our days in school and we in turn validated those days. And so that was, that was important. I wasn't a straight A student, nothing like that, but I mean, I, I, I did okay. I did good enough to get into the University of Washington in their business school. And then later I took additional studies at Wharton and at Stanford. And, um, and uh, along the way, uh, I started a, a career with uh, a major Wall Street firm 
And uh, I was with that firm for 21 years. And uh, then I made a change here about 11 years ago and went to a different major Wall Street firm. (laughs) So there's kind of the thumbnail sketch. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, I guess the the reason I, I asked that in particular is I think that to go from sort of poverty to Wall Street is like the ultimate contrast in you know, your perception of money. 
And I, I wonder how your view on money and wealth has changed as a byproduct of that experience. Well, um, I probably view money differently than most of the people on Wall Street. Um, I, I view money as simply the, the, the tangible uh, viability of your hopes and dreams. Everybody's got hopes and dreams. Um, money will make a lot of those more likely uh, than, than others. And so when, when, we, when we understand we're, we're dealing with people's hopes and dreams, it's a different deal than, you know, trying to have more money than the guy down the block. And, and that's how I view it. And my clients understand that because we're constantly talking about their hopes and dreams and we're planning for them. I'm a certified financial planner. And so we, 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 we plan, we measure, uh, we mark, we keep moving on and we're marching towards accomplishing those things. And the money is just the, the, the viable means for accomplishing those goals. Mm -hmm. So one thing that you actually said um, was that having come of age in the culture of Wall Street, I had speakers and coaches preach this gospel of linear thinking for years on end, pick a goal, never take your eyes off of it, and damn whatever gets in the way. I strongly mm -hmm. embraced this philosophy, but the outcome of Denali strongly challenged this notion. Since that time, I began to wonder if conventional wisdom about achieving goals had been all wrong. And that is such an interesting contrast to people who go and do the work that you do. I know this because I have you know friends who I went to college with who literally followed the most linear path. Like the path to working as an investment banker is fairly linear. It's mm -hmm. like go to the best damn school you can get into, then get your job at Goldman Sachs or wherever as an analyst. I mean, it's as linear as it gets. Mm -hmm. And yet I think that um, as somebody who has built a creative career, I know for a fact that life in general is not linear. So I wonder based on this experience of, of you know, questioning conventional wisdom. I know you said that, you know, you have your, you know, boys question conventional norms. Like what, how has it impacted the career advice you've given them to have seen this experience? Well, I've, um, this won't sound terribly unique, but I've, but I've always encouraged them to follow their interests. Um, and, um, when, when my youngest son, uh, finished college, uh, and a lot of people would, uh, go, um, uh, to work somewhere, uh, he said he wants some time to just think. And I said, well, why don't you pack your backpack and buy an airline ticket and go somewhere? So he did. Um, and uh, he, he did the same thing after high school, by the way. He, he sold his car. And uh, it wasn't much of a car, but it bought an airline ticket. <laughs> and he just, he showed up without any, any friends, any plans in, uh, in Paris and figured out how to stay in youth hostels and buy train tickets. And you meet other people doing the same thing. And he spent the entire summer just knocking around Europe and, and, uh, and learning about himself and learning about life. My, my other son is an architect and, um, all through childhood, architecture is what interested him. Where other kids are playing video games, uh, I bought him a CAD CAM program and he would design castles and buildings and all kinds of stuff like that. And, and by the time um, he was done with high school, he had this whole portfolio of architectural work he did and it, it got him into Illinois, um, uh, uh, Illinois uh, Technical Institute. And uh, for their architecture programs, uh, that's what he does. But um, yeah, I just I I I I I encourage them to to listen to listen to what they 
feel, you know, life is saying to them, which sounds about as squishy and intangible as any piece of advice. But but I, I strongly believe in it. And I try and teach them how to do that listening. No. So I think that what's funny is, is, you know, I, I actually don't mind that it's an intangible piece of advice because I like offering people a compass more than a map, uh, because I think everybody will end up with different results, no matter what advice they get. Yeah. And the thing that I wonder, you know, you talk about listening to what your life is telling you. And I think that that is one of those things that a lot of us tend to lose with age. Um, and it's one of those things where you wake up one day like yourself and say, okay, I'm at the low point of my life and you know, I'm going to climb the highest summit of the, like, why is it that it takes something like reaching this low point in your life? And can you give us, for the sake of our listeners who haven't read your book, um, give us context about what this low point was. Sure. Sure. Uh, first to answer your question, why it takes something like that is that I, I think that the, the one word answer is comfort. Um, as we move forward in life, in our career, in our circumstance, we become increasingly comfortable. I mean, that's that's not a bad thing. It's, it's, it's actually pretty nice. But the problem is comfort's the essential enemy of all growth. No growth occurs within comfort. If, if you want to grow, you're going to have to put yourself in an uncomfortable circumstance. And that's simply all there is to it. So uh, in, in my own case, um, life brought that to me. <laughs> And uh, my my circumstance involved uh, uh, my only brother died. And uh, shortly after that, uh, my marriage of 17 years came to an end. And uh, all this coincided with a market crash. And my uh, my career was very much in doubt. And on top of that, I was living in my sister's guest room, which is not where you expect to be at age 44. And um and uh, suffering from uh, chronic depression. And so it was indeed a moment where uh, I found myself in the bottom of the barrel looking up. And um, so uh, comfort was not a problem for me there. <laughs> but, um, but you know, the thing is, is this, is um, fear of failure holds us back in so many things in life. And if we're honest, it really, really does. I mean, th think about if I could guarantee you the next three things you try, you'll absolutely succeed in. I'm going to bet you would choose some bold things. Mm -hmm. um, but the interesting thing about when you're at that low, low, low point, and many of us have been there, some of us will be there, um, is that it's it's so easy to see everything that's being taken away from you, but it's not easy to see that one really, really, really valuable gift has been given to you, and it has a short shelf life. And the gift is this. That is the one time when I guarantee you, you will not fear failure. Um, you just don't care. You're, you, you're already at the bottom of the barrel. What's failure going to do? Make you feel bad? You, I mean, you already feel miserable. So the the, the point of it is that for a short while, you are bulletproof. Mm -hmm. You absolutely, because, you know, if it works out, hey, that's great. If it doesn't, it can't hurt me. I mean, I'm already, I'm already in a low place, right? Yeah. And But the problem is, is I say it's got a short shelf life because life will get better. Life always gets better. And, and for anyone who's in a low spot right now, I want to promise them life will get better. Now, there's things we can do to make it get better quicker and so forth, but, but it will get better. When it does, we will return to our normal tendencies of wanting comfort and fearing failure. And uh, so 
for a short while while you're bulletproof, make a bold choice. I don't mean a reckless choice, but I mean a bold choice. Um, and and take your shot at something. Um, I think it, it, it could hold, it, it could be the spark that lights the torch that leads you out of the darkness. Yeah. Well, I love that because I think that, you know, it's one of those things where I said, you know, you hit rock bottom, you've got nowhere to go but up, you know, and I mean, I've experienced this firsthand in my own life, like graduated business school with no job buried in debt. And I realized I was like, wow, if I hadn't been for that, I wouldn't have started any of the things that I had. Like, you know, and the funny thing is about these things that we only recognize the value of them in retrospect. Um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. In the moment, you're like, this is the worst damn thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. It's like nobody is saying, I feel so lucky in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, so of all the things that you could decide to do uh, in your rock bottom, what in the world made you choose the seven summits? Because there are a number of things that you could do here. You could go start a company. You could go learn how to surf. But you decided on something that is probably one of the most dangerous things a human being could do that literally comes with the downside of death, which is hilarious because you said bold choices instead of reckless ones. This is kind of a combination of both. Yeah, yeah, that's me doing kind of a do as I say, not as I do thing. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) um, so what happened was uh, on my birthday, a a package arrived. It was a birthday present from my little sister and her husband up in Anchorage, Alaska. And uh, I opened it up and and poured out the contents, and it was a couple of climbing poles, you know, kind of like trekking poles. And there was a note that said, happy birthday, super climber. And uh, I thought, gee, what's this all about? So I called him up, and uh, and um, he, he says, look, uh, we're planning an attempt on Mount McKinley in eight months. Now, now officially renamed Denali, but... Uh, that's a high point in North America. I did not know that at the time. Uh, I thought, okay, it's a mountain. But um, uh, he says, and uh, we'd like you to be on the team. Uh, and uh, and he says, you know, I think you need something like this right about now. And, uh, and I told him, I said, well, look, I'm not a mountain climber. So that sounds like a pretty bad fit to me. And uh, <laughs> last time uh, I, I checked, people die every spring up there. So um, I'll, I'll pass, but thanks. And uh and he said, well, you know, think about it. You got some time. And so he would call me back every once in a while and kind of prod me some more. And I'd say, well, you know, I don't know anything about climbing. He said, you know, we got a team full of veterans. They'll teach you things. They'll look out for you. It'll be okay. And then somewhere in there, that that notion, that gift came to me that uh, I really didn't have much to lose. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll go. And uh, um I went to the local bookstore, bought a couple books on climbing, including one on climbing Denali, and was horrified by what I'd committed to. Um, <laughs> but that that gave me a wake-up call, and I knew I was going to have to take this seriously, train hard, learn hard, do as much as I could to prepare. I, I hired a personal trainer, and uh, man, when I arrived in Alaska, I was in the best shape of my life, no question. Tell me about the training because I like the closest thing to this that I've ever done in terms of training was a friend, you know, invited me to hike Half Dome with him and he actually questioned, you know, my athletic ability. So, you know, I played basketball every day. I was in in the best shape of my life. The second time I did it, I made the stupid mistake, which I'm sure you'll be like, yeah, that's, you know, you're an idiot for doing this of doing it with a hangover. Worst idea ever to climb Half Dome with a a hangover because I remember my buddy called. And he, you know, this was, uh, we're you know driving up Friday night. This was Thursday. And he 
calls he shows up at two o'clock in the afternoon in San Francisco. He's like, You're out all night partying, weren't you? I was like, How'd you know? He's like, Because you butt dialed me, you know, you pocket dialed me while I was boarding <laughs> my flight in New York, which is dude, like, I really don't think you should come on this. And it was the most miserable experience. You know, like I took the wrong way down with nothing but switchbacks, but um, and that was the end of it for me. I was like, you know what? All this walking around looking at rocks is for white people, not Indian people. <laughs> like, this is my ongoing joke with my roommates. I was like, you don't see brown people in Patagonia ads. There's a reason for that. Um, but all joking aside, tell me what the training for this is actually like. Like, what goes into this? Because I mean, you know, like each one of these seems, you know, from from reading the book, it seems like they get progressively more and more difficult. Well, uh, they do. They do. It, and the, the training really depends on on the mountain and and what it will demand. On some mountains, you're carrying heavy loads, and so you're going to need good core strength. You're you're going to need to beef up your back, your shoulders, um, as well as having super strong legs. Um, some mountains, like a Denali or like a Vincent Massif down in Antarctica, you're not only carrying heavy loads, but you're also dragging a sled full of heavy stuff. So you've got to train for that. And I would. Uh, uh, pull a tire uh, around my neighborhood <laughs> uh, while wearing my pack. And people, you know, would stop and ask what I was doing. Uh, but, uh, you know, a- after a number of mountains, they just understood it had something to do with the mountain. They would stop and say, okay, what are you climbing now? And uh, so then, you know, you, you go through one of those where uh, you're, you're building, 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 and then you're staring down the barrel of Kilimanjaro. Well, you're not going to carry any weight uh, aside from your lunch and another layer of clothes because you're required to hire so many porters to get a climbing permit there. So you're really not carrying anything and you don't want all that bulk muscle above the waist, which will serve no purpose, but is going to have to be oxygenated in an environment where there's very little oxygen. So now you got to get rid of all that mass. And so you you find yourself remaking your body over and over again, tailored specifically for the climb you're aiming at. Hmm. So, you know, one thing I, I wonder is um, this is something I, I know you you kind of allude to this, you know, throughout the book um, in terms of, of sort of, you know, having these conversations each time you go. There was one quote, but I want to come to it at the very end. Every time you go, you know, like I know that you you ended up, you know, remarrying and meeting somebody else after, you know, your divorce. But each time you go on one of these, you know, those trips, like one of these climbs, the possibility that you won't come back is there. You know, I remember I have uh, I had a friend uh, named Maria Brophy whose husband is a big wave surfer. And it's kind of the same thing. Like she said, you know, you know, every single time he goes, um, you know, no matter how he experienced he is, this is like 75 foot surf. Like it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. Yeah. So what is that conversation like with the people that you love most each time you do this? Well, it's, 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 it's different depending on the person, obviously. So like my sons, um, they didn't want to talk about that. And, mm-hmm. um, and just given everything they were going through, you know, with life after the divorce and that sort of stuff, I didn't feel I should push the point and, and uh, make their life still less comfortable. So we kind of left it alone. Um, I wrote letters to each of them that were kept with my will in case I didn't come back. So, you know, that I could share sort of those last fatherly words, but that was as far as we went with that. Um, whereas, you know, my mom, my mom fought it, 
at first. She she would t- call me all the time and send me newspaper articles and <laughs> and uh, you know whatever she could to dissuade me from doing it. And at some point, she realized that nothing was going to work. Um, that that I was I, I was I was following what I believed to be a calling that life was issuing to me. And I simply was not going to deviate from that regardless. And, and then she kind of got on board, which was cool. And, uh, she would, um, follow my blog posts and, uh, and, uh, she would ask really insightful questions before and after climbs. And that got a little bit better. That was good. But she, she always knew when I was pushing for a summit somewhere and she would stay up all night long, just kind of praying and hoping and that sort of thing. It was really sweet that way. Um, as far as uh, Lynn, my, my, my partner, um, I, I had already climbed Denali when she met me. So she never knew me as a non-climber. And so because of that, it kind of became something you just have to accept if you're going to be with this person. Yeah. That doesn't make it easier, though. Um, and we we would have talks and there would inevitably be some moment uh, uh, shortly before I left on a climb where she would she would break down and have to kind of get it out. And and I would sit with her and and, you know, and, and try and give her the honest appraisal of of uh, the risks and how we'll manage them while, while not denying that there are some things that are that are objective. You cannot manage them. So um, that was that was, you know, the, the kind of conversations I had. I can really, I mean, nowhere near as, you know, crazy, but like anytime, you know, there's an article about a surfer who drowns or something terrible happening or a person getting bit by a shark somehow, my parents send me a message about it. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, oh, it's much more likely to get hit by a car. So I'm not going to not surf because somebody got bit by a shark. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I don't think we necessarily do these things because they're dangerous. Yeah. Um, you know, I think surfers surf because they love surfing, not not because there's the thrill that you might get bit by a shark. Right. Um, but uh, um, but look, anything that's exciting probably has an element of danger to it. It's the, the two just they go hand in hand. It's mm-hmm. it's what I I talk about in the book. Um with uh, uh, the the difference between the man-made world and nature's world. You know, in, in, in the man-made world, everything is designed so that we can experience beauty uh, without any personal risk, right? Uh, there, there, there are pathways and guardrails and rules and laws and, and all this sort of stuff. And that's cool, all right? But in nature, it doesn't work that way. You're, the, the reward is always commensurate with the risk taken. And um, one of the, the 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 aha moments for me was when I realized that that love is not of the man-made world; it's of nature. And the problem is, is I was trying to experience love in my new relationship under man-made rules, where you can experience beauty and love as a form of beauty without personal risk, right? So I was still kind of protecting myself. Um, and uh, and the relationship was struggling. Um, and um, once I realized that it was of the natural world, that uh, I would never truly know love until I risked myself completely, uh, then everything changed. Mm. So you've had to have seen people die in this process, right? And yeah. Have you ever had to come back and tell somebody's loved ones uh, about somebody dying on one of your climbs? And if so, how do you how do you communicate that? 
No, I have not. I've not oh. had to do that, which which I'm thankful for. Um, yeah, yeah. There's there there have been some deaths. Um, I don't talk much about that in the book, um, and that was a conscious choice. Yeah, uh, mainly because I feel like people get it. Right. There have been enough books written about the the death and the suffering and the this and the that. There's really nothing left to be said on that score. Um, I felt there was a much more important story to be told, and I wanted to stick with that. So there's a couple times in there. I, you know, we lost a teammate on Everest and so forth. And and I and I and I do give that some some word count, but but by and large, I, I I'm not interested in, in stressing the ever-present dangers yeah. <laughs> of the climb. Well, I mean, so I mean, these are things that I'm asking out of morbid curiosity myself. Like, what was, what's the most afraid you ever remember being in the Seven Summits? Yeah. Uh, well, that would have been on Everest. Um, I, uh, I was climbing the Lhotse face. So when you, when you, when you, when you climb Everest, you, you're actually climbing a lot of other things, working your way up to the part of Everest where you'll start. You don't just start off at the foot of Everest. And so, you know, the sort of the last bootstrap, if you will, is, uh, Mount Lhotse, which is, you know, sort of shoulder to shoulder with Everest. And, um, you, because that South side of Everest is essentially unclimbable, um, you climb Lhotse instead, and then you traverse over to Everest uh, near the south summit. And from there, you're climbing Everest, um, which is the last leg of the journey, really. Um, but uh, up Lhotse, it's about 3,000 vertical feet of gain, and it's very nearly vertical ice. And uh, so it's difficult climbing. It's very demanding. And it's also um, quite high. It's 23,000 feet. So um, I was climbing up that, making good time. I'm I'm a, I'm I'm pretty brisk paced when I climb, and uh, we got to a tiny ledge and had stopped there. Myself and my Sherpa Mingma, and we we're going to take some hydration in. And I just I started getting dizzy. I started to black out, and and instinctively I, I grabbed an ice screw and drove it in and clipped into it, and. Um, and I thought, oh, no, is, it, is this really how it ends? Because it was the week before in almost the exact same place, same symptoms where our teammate had died. And um, uh, I, uh, I thought, wow, this is, this is where it ends. This, I don't know what's going on, but, but I'm in serious trouble here. And um, uh, that, was, that was my most frightened moment. Mm. So I don't, I don't know if the, I don't remember if this was from this exact moment, but, uh, this actually stood out to me. You said, you know, the taunting collections of frustrations and hurts that had kept me down for years, my father's abandonment, my childhood in poverty, my brother's death and the failure of my marriage. They kept coming one after another, a lifetime of demons intent on keeping me down, but I kept going. I kept stomping and slashing at the mountain, moving higher with each fight. How do people find that within themselves, uh, in, you know, dealing with their current life circumstances? Great question. Well, first, I think it's important to understand it is within themselves. It, it is definitely there. Um, finding it, I don't know, I suppose everybody has a different path to finding it. But I think when we're pushed to our limits, it comes out and it says, okay, enough of this shit. And, uh, and, and it stands up for you. Uh, and um, 
that's the that's the moment I was describing that part of the book. That was on Denali. Um, going into Denali, I was basically just a really angry, toxic human being. And I didn't even know everything I was angry about, but I was angry. And the problem with, with anger is it's really just sadness pushed through the wrong conduit. And so it, until we can move the anger away, we can't see the actual thing we're sad about. And, and that was one of the big revelations for me about my climb on Denali was I, I, I got to that point where, you know, when, when, when you've worked so hard and suffered so much, all the BS gets stripped away. There's no room for the false narratives that you use to protect yourself. None of that works anymore. And all that's left is whatever your basic truth is. And you've got to stand in that truth. And, and I eventually came to that moment and, and recognized the, the, the name by which each of those hurts would be called. And that was an important step for me. And coming back from Denali, I realized none of my problems had been solved, but at least I understood what they were now. And I could develop a means of addressing them. Yeah. So one thing that you said, uh, this this really struck me struck, struck me in particular because I, I thought of it. I said, "Wow, that's kind of like the way a surfer would describe waves." You said, "We like to speak of mountains as though they're people with intent, judgment, and mercy. We like to imagine our virtue as being part of the mix, but mountains don't give a shit. They'll kill you the same as anyone else, regardless of your faith or fitness, experience or effort." So the thing that I always wonder, you know, I, I feel like as a surfer, I have brought so much of what I've learned from surfing into the way I live my day to day life. Um, you know, even as a snowboarder, I mean, now I'm living in Colorado, but still, um, it, it had a, a profound impact. And I wonder, you know, in your experience, like what are the lessons from that that you have, you know, brought into your day to day life? So the, the the physical challenge, I think, most typically is associated with a sense of achievement, uh, uh, a sense of confidence, a sense of uh, believing in oneself more, and all that is 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 quite valid. Um, but but if we, if we talk about something that's more than just a physical challenge, something that's that's really going to tear it all down. And, and, and this is not a unique idea on my part. I mean, Native Americans have vision quests, which are designed around the same principle uh, to, to, to go off by yourself in the woods without any food or water. And they, and they have these, what some might call hallucination. They would say they're visited by a spirit. Um, most cultures have their own version of this. Um, and, um, I, I think they all are getting at the same thing, and that is just tearing down all of the nonsense that's piled up on top of those basic truths so that we can see them. And um, when you do something that's really physically difficult, and afterwards, you know, you find yourself lying there just glad to be breathing air, uh, It'll be a while before you realize what it was you were so pissed off about yesterday. Um, and that means in that period of time, you might also realize what it is you're most grateful for today. Yeah. Wow. So there's one thing I think the very end of the book, uh, this is probably one of my other favorite quotes from the book. You said, from the moment a climber wages, they can stand atop Everest. They're required to make certain payments to keep that bet alive. They're psychological payments taking the form of mental fatigue the doubts of third parties and the painful two months of ab absence of loved ones. 
But the final payment a climber must lay on the table is their life. And when I finished reading that, I thought to myself, like, why the hell does anybody want to do this? Like, why do people do this? <laughs> what is the reason behind this? Yeah, I know. It doesn't make any damn sense. Um, <laughs> so you, you probably noted there were a number of times in the book where I asked that very question of climbers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, they can't answer it. Yeah. Uh, it just kind of becomes sand passing through their fingers. And uh, my whole hope when writing the book is I would at least be able to answer it for me, <laughs> why, why I did it. And that doesn't mean my answer looks anything like anybody else's, and I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, as, as I've come to understand the psyche of climbers more and more and more, um, I've come to realize that they not only don't know exactly why they're doing it, but they like things that way. They don't want to know. Uh, they, 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 they appreciate that life should have some mystery and it should be enough that something just gives you joy. Wow. Um, well, this has been really, really eye-opening. I've really enjoyed talking to you. So I have one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews with the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, I, I, I would describe it as, as a barbell's impression. And I put it that way to, to create kind of a visual accompaniment. When, when somebody or something is unmistakable, first of all, it hits you right away. You, 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 it's like dragging a needle across a record. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. This, this, this is not the regular thing here. Um, and you have that experience and move on. And after some time goes by, you find yourself going back and reflecting on it. And it, and it and it stays with you in your mind and your thinking. And I and I think that's that's our subconscious just trying to sort it all out and 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 and, and glean the essence of greatness or unmistakability. Mm, amazing. Wow. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights and <clears throat> wisdom with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, um, your work, uh, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, DavidMorrow.com. Uh, and uh, that's my, my webpage. And I post some stuff there and a map of where I've been, where I'm going with my talks. I, I partnered up with uh, REI, the equipment company, and uh, I've spoken, I think, 48 different stores at this point. So, <laughs> and I've got, I've got about 90 more to go. So <laughs> I'll be around. But uh, uh, there's that. I, I, I think it's more fun actually to follow on the book's Facebook page, the Altitude Journals, yeah. uh, because I post a lot more there short clips, videos. Recently, I shared a, a sub story that hit the cutting room floor during editing of the book, but I just love the story. And um, I felt like, you know, there's enough grimness in our lives with this virus thing. I want to just offer something to readers that might put a smile on their face. So uh, did that. Um, so uh, the, the book is available in print, ebook, uh, audio book. I read the book in the audio book um, and uh, all that through Amazon, iTunes, Audible, um, all that kind of stuff. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? 
If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.